Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, two books... Selena Godden on her memoir, Springfield Road, and then Kate Hamer on her debut novel, The Girl in the Red Coat. Selena Godden writes and performs poetry, fiction, memoir, radio dramas and lyrics. Her latest book of poems, Fishing in the Aftermath, was published in 2014 by Burn and I Books. She runs the Book Club Boutique, London's lousiest literary salon, and is lead singer and lyricist of Saltpeter, alongside composer Peter Coit. She can regularly be heard on Radio 4, and last year presented the documentary Try a Little Tenderness, The Lost Legacy of Little Miss Cornshucks. Her literary memoir, Springfield Road, was recently published by Unbound, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, Selena, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much for asking me in here. Hello. I've just listed a load of other stuff that you do, lots of different types of writing. Why did you decide to do a memoir? Oh, the memoir. I was approached by an agent who asked me to have a go at writing a memoir. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really my idea. I must say that. I think in those days, I was much happier standing up on stage, going into one about one-night stands and cervical Mm -hmm. smears, much happier doing that than sort of... But autobiographical. Yeah, yeah. I was much happier doing that than kind of betraying myself by admitting tenderness, admitting softness, always going for the for the rude, mm-hmm. rude sort of jokes, sex jokes, rather than something a bit mm-hmm. more real, a bit more honest. Let's talk about how, the, how you got going with that process then. So how did you find, in comparison to those other formats, how did you find writing them or how did you work... The thing that I learnt most of anything was about memory. So Mm. the book started all being written in first person and it was huge. The first draft was like 130,000 words, all in first person. It's awful. It was rubbish. It was terrible. But some of those bits did work and so they stayed in Mm. this last book that you have now in that kind of immediate I am the child voice. But the amazing thing with memoir is the first thing you do is you sit down and write things and they're the things that you say like as jokes in the pub to make people think you were cute or funny the day you lost your doll or the day you won a running race or the day you lost your front tooth Mm -hmm. they're those sort of stories and then you start to realise that a lot of those are borrowed memories they're things that people have told you about things that your mother has found cute or things that your brother has teased you about Mm -hmm. and they're not necessarily you don't actually remember them so then separating the borrowed memories from the real memories is where the real work starts I think and you start being be honest do you actually really remember that or is it just 
Yeah, because yeah. our memories are honestly just, fallible. Yeah, and you do. I mean, there are there are sections in this book where you're you're talking about very vivid things that happen to you and are three years old or four years old in, yeah. in the sequence, which is you know, which is which is an incredible memory, really. So how how were you able to so vividly portray something from so long ago? Well, part of the answer to that, I do think my long term memory is better than my short term memory. Like I can remember and identify with how it feels to be a nine-year-old girl staring up at clouds with scabby knees and longing and daydreaming. I can relate to that person a lot more mm-hmm. than the grown-up lady person I'm supposed to be today. Like this grown-up. Who is the, who, who is grown-up? I, I never really understood that. So that's part of the answer. But it also was kind of a little bit like I used a lot of things to poke memories like photographs mm-hmm. and smell and colour and music. And like the smell, like I'd roast a chicken on purpose to get the house really smelling like a Sunday, mm-hmm. like being at home on a Sunday and that kind of feeling. Or And if you lit, and, and I talk about it like licking the nib of a felt tip, the taste of a felt tip, you know, to do colouring yeah. in. That immediately transports me back to a certain time. Mm-hmm. Certain smells, certain colours, certain music definitely evoke. And kind of like jumping into photographs and kind of um, actually putting yourself in a photograph. Mm-hmm. I did that quite a bit. Photographs um, and, and diaries. And letters, well. yeah. Yeah, the, the, there's letters reproduced in the book and your mother gave you her diaries. And, and this would be, you know, if you were a historian writing about somebody else, these would all be the sort of, you know, the primary sources that you would use yeah. to research. But obviously when you, you know, you're Searching into your own mother's life. That's yeah. a different thing, isn't it? Well, I think my mum, I mean, my mum is a fantastic, I mean, she's amazing. I think my mum, that's a whole other book. That would mean, like, going and living in Jamaica for a year mm-hmm. and, and properly getting really, I, I touch on Jamaica, but uh, as I say, you know, I haven't, yeah. I, but to actually, like, really get in there with the history and the Jamaican history. And my mother's fantastic and very colourful life and background. Yeah, that's a whole book itself. But again, I had to, I used some of her diary but then it just started to go like whose story am I telling and mm-hmm. and, and also yeah it's, it's, it's just sort of some things are someone else's story to tell you know you've written long form things before but I was going to ask what for someone who's uh, you know, such a vivid performer your stuff you do spoken word is is probably the thing that you're most well known for and also the, the you know the music sort of sequestering yourself away for long periods of time to write this must have been quite tough well the one thing that I kind of you know, I am quite disciplined. I'm quite. I'm a lot straighter and a lot squarer than. Than you make out. Yeah. Cool, <laughs> come on. You know, I wouldn't get any writing done if I really was at all those parties you think I'm at. No. But yeah, I mean, I think I'm a, a sort of schizophrenic in that way because part of me is that big, big, bawdy, loud, boobs, jokes, carry on tongue-in-cheek stuff and then the other half of me is like this kind of really really studious bookish quiet person that really you know it's it's a, it's I'm quite competitive with myself mm-hmm. with what I will write tomorrow knowing it'll be better than what I wrote yesterday so constantly it's very rare that I think I've done good it's very mm-hmm. rare that I think I've done something worthy or, or something yeah I, I really really self-critical also as well with this uh was these people aren't characters they're people i have to have christmas dinner with mm-hmm. so 
I, I mean, I lived a very strange life writing this book. I'd like go to bed at nine and get up at four in the morning and then write from four till four. And that's pretty, you know, just sort of live on little bowls of brown rice yeah. uh, for chunks of time away from people. And you know what? I don't think I'd ever write a book like that again. I think I'd be a lot kinder to myself. It was really a bit mean. And then I'd go on these huge drinking benders because literally I hadn't seen anyone for two weeks, like a monk. And then I'd go on these huge kind of like four-day blinding benders, you know, until I was disgusted with myself and then go home in a wreck and sort of glue myself back together and go back into another sort of 14-day writing binge, which is just as unhealthy as the other binge, both, you know, like binge writing, binge drinking. So I don't think that's really... You know what I miss most of all is just hearing your own name, hearing someone say your name with familiarity and love and sharing a meal with someone. So you find yourself going out to pick up a bottle of milk just and you to talk have a like a nutter. Yeah, you talk like a nutter to the lady in the shop. Yeah, I know, I know. I do that anyway. It's really bad. I really talk to people, and sometimes they just look at me like I'm mad. I was going to bring this up later when we actually started talking about the family members in more detail, but you've just you've mentioned this idea that you had to, you know, you were writing about people that you had to then subsequently have Christmas dinner with in the process. So what did they think? My mum was completely supportive from the beginning and was just go for it, tell your story, you can do it. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of going home, going, Mum, I can't do it, I'm driving myself mad. And, and I was, it was a very difficult journey. I mean, the whole thing... I started it in 2006, so it's been a very long road to get here with the finished published book and a lot a lot of obstacles and challenges and mm-hmm. things to overcome with, within myself as well. And also people dying, people being born, so that changes. A memoir is a living, breathing muscle. Mm-hmm. It's constantly changing and growing, as you are constantly changing and growing. I'm not the same Selena I was in 2006, mm-hmm. so I've kind of changed and grown in the process. And, of course... I've outlived my father now. In the book, I very much talk about how I think uh, I wrote it with this I won't even be here, mm-hmm. kind of really blatantly honest. I'm not even scared because I, f- I was so convinced that I was going to die when I was 40 anyway. So then to outlive my father's curse, which mm-hmm. I invented in my own stupid head, really, come on. But yeah, that's to sort of outlive my father and I'm now over 40. My whole life changed when I turned 40 and I, and I started living and stop living under that shadow. Mm-hmm. So everything really changed. But it meant that a lot of it was written with this, like, I won't even be here to hear you hate it or love it. I won't even be here to hear the criticism. So that boldness is kind of comes through, I think, quite quite true. I think you've already touched on this a little. You mentioned the idea of, you know, some of the stuff that you would talk about, the confessional stuff you would say in your performance, which was ballsy and the more emotionally mm. honest stuff in the memoir. So during the process of writing it, how do you how do you decide what's going in and I guess more importantly what's not going in? Oh, that was that yes. I mean I could actually, you know, run a series of kind of outtakes. Because there's quite a lot that got chopped out, mm. taken out throughout the process. So many different versions. I mean, there was one version, like, many years ago, where we just took out all the joy. And it was just like... And it's, if you just, just keep just the blokes in, mm-hmm. you've got a really dark story. Yeah. You've got, you know, scary grandfather, dad hangs himself, you know, scary stepfather. You've got, like, this really horrible paternal sort of arc of really horrible men in... If you take all the sort of little incidences and holiday yeah. and the joy out of it. And uh, I really didn't want to put a book like that out. Because that's just not real. Mm-hmm. That's not who I am you can see I've had a laugh look at my big grinning face (laughs) obviously people if someone's been kind to me because otherwise I wouldn't be laughing so much all the time the process of writing this memoir how has that subsequently affected your other writing has it changed things do you think 
Oh, writing Springfield Road has completely changed. Not my poetry so much, because that's, that's, I put that somewhere else, over there with my lyric writing, I think. And it's definitely changed the way I write long form, the way I approach short stories. I learned a lot in that process, mm-hmm. and I don't feel, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that it took as long as it did. I re- just rewrote it hundreds of times, and every single comma and every single full stop has been argued about at great length and I learned a lot about the editing process mm-hmm. and I learned a little bit of patience not too much patience but I learned some patience but I'm glad that it took as long as it did and I'm glad I worked on it as hard as, as I did and, and I learned I, I definitely learned a lot my yeah my other work my short stories and fiction have really changed this new novel that I'm working on it's just a really different process from the things I've learned by writing this one You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to Selena Gordon, and we're talking about her book, Springfield Road. And let's get into what the book's about now then, Selena. So it's it's ostensibly a memoir of growing up. Well, it begins, certainly. I mean, once we get to Springfield Road, things change. But, you know, initially it's a memoir of growing up poor in a small town in the East Midlands in the 1970s and 1980s, and we're roughly the same age and I grew up in a small town in the East Midlands poor as well and so lots of this book is really recognisable to me it really resonates with me but also the major theme of this book is growing up in the 70s in a small town in a mixed race family which obviously is something that's you know not something I'm familiar with and actually I'm also not familiar with it from the literature so is that something that was also literary wise unfamiliar to you? I suppose I went looking in libraries and in bookshops. I really went looking for this book, for someone to tell this mm. story, and I really couldn't find this book anywhere. And as I can't remember who said it. Someone clever like Alice Walker or someone really clever said, uh, I couldn't find the book I wanted to read, so I wrote mm. it, and to paraphrase. But it really was a case of that. There really was just this book just doesn't exist, England... Except not really. There's a couple. Angela Ashworth, Once Upon mm-hmm. a Time, This House on Fire. I'm sorry, I've lost the title. That's a fantastic book. And then about suicide, Ianthe Brotican's book about her father, um, Richard Brotican, You Can't Catch Death. Mm-hmm. I read that. That was fantastic. Um, I read loads of memoirs while I was writing my memoir. But, uh, I, yeah, I couldn't really find anything that was telling my story. I really felt like there was a gap there in the library. So what's the reaction been to it since it's been published then? Blimey, nothing could have uh, prepared me for this bit. Mm. It's like I forgot people were going to read it. (laughs) I've been so busy writing it and getting it right and then crowdfunding it and then getting it published that I kind of forgot about this bit, the aftercare, mm-hmm. like the bit afterwards, after people start reading it. I've just been, I've, I'm not exaggerating, but I've been just absolutely flummoxed, like just loads of letters, real letters, like in the post letters and emails and messages on Facebook and messages and emails and all sorts of people saying, you're telling my story, thank you for telling me, writing this book, I'm mixed race, I've never, we had a stepfather that was this, this, that and the other, my father, 
father killed himself, we never talked about it. So many different levels. Some people from the race level, some people with the bereavement and grief level. Wow, it's mm-hmm. been amazing. That I wasn't prepared for. That's been really stunning. And that's made me sort of realise I did something good. And what does that? how does that the, make the, you the, feel, though? That, 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 you know, almost as if you, there's... I don't know. A little bit responsible, yeah, like I'm responsible yeah. for something. Yeah, but because which is the... not a responsibility that most writers would yeah. expect to have first upon them. I don't mind that. It makes me feel like a big sister, mm-hmm. which is not. I'm used to being the naughty little sister. So okay, so this is a bit of a transformation. So I'm like the big sister one. But a lot of their emails and letters are very like everything. They're telling me everything, really confessional. And I think that you know because I, th- I haven't really held back. Yeah, because they know everything about you. Yeah, they've just read it. So they just go blur, and I'm like, wow. And I'm like having my cup of tea nine in the morning. Facebook message. Oh, my dad did this, and my mum did that, and it's like, wow. And you're trusting me with your secrets and with your thing. I'm, I just feel very humbled, very privileged, and uh, and yeah, just a little bit. I don't. I mean, the book's only been out since October. I don't think it's even. You know, not not even as many people have read it are going to read it that are going to blah, 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 if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't even started yet. Yeah, with people reading it and there, I haven't had um, anyone be horrible about it yet though. I just said, and all the reviews have been really kind, so that bit's good too. Now, I I think there are some things that we will give away. A couple of things that you already have, perhaps. Um, I don't really necessarily want to talk about much story-wise because I want people to to experience that for themselves reading it. But I want to talk about the context of the book through the some of the characters that mm. that we meet in the book. And you've already mentioned how there could be another book about your mother and about her, you know her amazing backstory and her family, a massive extended family yeah. over in Jamaica. But tell us something about her first of all. About my mother. Um, what would you like me to tell you? I mean, she she had a, she was a fantastic talent, an amazing ballerina, and a fan. But her big dream was to run for the Olympics. So she had this real burning thing about with her athletics, but she had a lot of obstacles, and so it didn't work out. I think that's probably why she's always supported my dreams <laughs> that I may you know that I may sort of not have that hindrance or have anything get in my way. I think that's where I get my go from because mm-hmm. she she's always really pr- like helped me you know and try try again try try again it's simple but it's true just keep going don't you mm-hmm. keep on keeping on yeah and she has this you talk briefly at the beginning of the book about this sort of extended family we've got an amazing family i went to i went to visit them it was they're incredible the robinsons are amazing they're huge politics and they're huge doctors and the groundbreaking award-winning super clever people this getting up from four in the morning thing it definitely <laughs> comes from my mother's side but i even sound a bit jamaican there we <laughs> 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 suck in my teeth next and we go on <laughs> beyond yourself as it's your memoir the the main character is your father paul mm. godden and you know he's largely absent throughout the book the story the book is really a story of you trying to not find him but you know find out who he is and find out about him so who was he still quite a mystery isn't it i mean i say that i feel like his personal road sweeper sweeping up letters and bits of poetry he was a great poet and um, jazz musician libertine crazy guy i mean basically he's that guy that you find on the beach drinking a bottle of brandy with no shoes on and you say why haven't you got any shoes 
and you have a sip of brandy, you share a cigarette. Before you know it, you've taken him home. You've made him egg on toast. You've poured him a bath and you've married him. He's like one of those ones. <laughs> totally my type. But, yeah, no, I mean, he's, he, was, he was that guy. And then, you know, he picks up a trumpet and plays something beautiful and steals your heart. Yeah, I think he he was quite a character. Sometimes, you know, a little bit like I sort of talk about it. I try and imagine he's sort of something like a cross between sort of Chet Baker and Peter Doherty or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know something really tragic about him, but also something very beautiful and and and, and appealing. So destructive, but on the other hand, destructive. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> what kind of destructive? To both sides kind, of his character, but kind of brilliant and kind of. Well, my mum, my mum's phrasing is that she says he had an infectious mischief, mm-hmm. which I, I kind of a contagious or an infectious mischief, which I think I definitely inherited. Yeah, I, I really I pride myself on definitely being able to get everyone to the pub, and definitely you know making a party and and making it fun and keeping it live. That's definitely my dad's side, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've already mentioned that. Um, well, I mean, he 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 leaves the family quite early on. How old were you? In about uh, four. Yeah, I would have been about. T- in fact, younger than two that. or three. Yeah, I think, two, yeah, before school. Yeah. Okay, so you were you were two when he left. So he was absent from your life, and then um, you find out in 1981 that he's basically hung himself, as yeah. as you've already mentioned. So you know, he's he was never going to be a part of your life in sort of real terms. But yeah. then that itself is. You know, that's something else, that suicide is something else that then hangs over, Yeah, hangs over your life. Well, suicide always leaves so many questions, doesn't it? That's the big cliché that everyone always says. But it is it is true, it leaves so many questions. But I think up until that point, me and my brother really did believe that at some point when we were big enough, or, or one day he'd come back and get us, or mm-hmm. one day when we were big enough we could get a bus to Bristol or wherever he was living and find him. We couldn't accept that he didn't want us or want us in his life or want to get to know us. And, uh, yeah, so that, that was a, that was quite a big thing. Once he was gone, that was like, wow, no, he, yeah. So I don't think that ever went away wanting to get to know him. Mm. So I think that probably was quite a drive in the book. Well, before, actually, we talk about any of the other the living, breathing, formerly living, breathing characters, people, another character in the book is this titular Springfield Road house yeah. that you lived in in Hastings. You've just mentioned this idea of, you know, your father being a guy who you might find on the beach. Yeah. Barefoot. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if, you, if your grandfather had, had, had found him and him barefoot on the beach in Hastings with a bottle of brandy, he would have taken him home and, and had him live there, wouldn't he? Definitely, definitely. <laughs> Grandpa George was amazing. The house was always full of all kinds of characters, the different people that, that he'd sort of offered shelter to or offered like somewhere to crash. And I remember there was Bert. There's, there's people that didn't make it into the book. There was a guy called Bert who was like this sort of pirate guy who's covered in tattoos. And I thought he was shocking. I loved him, but I thought he was so shocking because he had like naked ladies all over his arms. I thought it was so rude. And there was a man called, I can't remember something like Mr. Mr. Sp- but maybe a sponge, Mr. And he had like a bulbous elephant man face. And he used to leave bags of apples on, on the doorstep. I was terrified of him. He used to run a mile. He'd have like a big load of drool coming from his face, you know, and like a sort of Simpsons character or something. I don't know.
Travis Obra. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So give us an idea of what it was like to live in that house. To live it, to actually live in the house was, was amazing. It was down in the basement. My grandpa, Grandpa George, never moved or changed anything mm-hmm. um, from when his wife passed away uh, in 1972. Mm-hmm. So basically, it was like a shrine. So it's like kind of like Mrs. Faversham or something. It was like big dust and big, like, sweeping blankets of dust, big sheets of cobwebs, I mean, mm-hmm. being, like down in this dusty basement. And there'd be, like, birds custard and old newspapers from 1972. And it was and pictures of the Queen and all oh, oh, It was just really bizarre down there. And then up in the attic, again, it was like a shrine. There was, like, old cots. And, oh, it was just so dusty and strange. It was great to roam around and go nosing around looking at things as a kid. Yeah, and well, these George and Edith, his wife, they were your father Paul's parents. Yeah. So while your your father disappears from your life, you basically his you know his parents yeah. stay stay in your life. Well, I mean, grand- that was... yeah, Grandpa George really loved my mum. My mum really loved him. They were really like they got they were really close. In Grandpa's words, he always thought it was rather a pity that Paul didn't uh, stand up to his responsibilities with his children. And, and so he sort of took my mum's side very much, and, uh, and 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 every month he'd send us boxes, like sort of care boxes with like packets of soup, and uh, there'd be Hastings Rock in there and Life Boy soap, and things like that, because uh, he knew we were really broke. Yeah, it was amazing. Lovely, kind man he was. Where did that come from? Do you think that that sort of he is? He's a saint. Yeah. <laughs> he's just constantly, you know, looking out for people, taking people in. Yeah. Just you know, he's. He's, he's such a lovely guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was. He was amazing. He, it was him that sort of really installed this kind of love of music. He was really into his classical music, and he'd take me to the ballet and to see you know, for special treats. Not like all the time, but like super special treat. He like once took me to see Swan Lake, and you just don't forget things like that mm-hmm. when you get even as an adult. You sort of yeah. And and I really wanted to get him on telly, and he used to laugh and go, "Oh, you are!" He used to all the time he'd pat my big afro and mm-hmm. he'd go, "You are a funny little girl, aren't you? <laughs> you are funny, aren't you? Funny, <laughs> Selena!" And he'd like pat my head, and and because uh, I wanted to get him on TV because you could literally drop any bit of mm-hmm. any classical song, and he'd go, "Oh, that's Tchaikovsky," and we'd go, "Do it again, Grandad, do it again. What's this?" And then we like a bit of Mozart or something. Yeah, anyway. he should have been on You Bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, so, how much of you, the performer, do you think comes out of that life? Again, you had this, you know, distant, mysterious father who was, you know, a, a, a jazz musician. Um, you know, you end up a performance poet and a musician yourself. I mean, do you, is this where it comes from? Or? I think, well, there's lots of answers. I mean, the first answer for that is, and I talk about this in the book, I kind of say, you know, whenever I played up or start making up songs or making up little poems, my mum would sort of reward me in a way by mm-hmm. telling me I was being like my dad. Oh, you're just like your dad. Oh, you you got that from Paul, she'd sort of say. But I think I was I was always I was perform, always performing. I've always been writing poems and songs. Even, even as a really, really small little girl, I was writing, you know, changing the lyrics and studying lyrics on albums. And, yeah, I, I think it's just it's a bit of nature as well as nurture, yeah. One thing that you're father left should we say gave to you in some respects apart from a massive appetite for booze yeah yeah. apart from that (laughs) um, as it turns out and this is a bit of a spoiler but um is a a, well i should say you also you do have a brother and a a sister who we've not 
we've not actually mentioned in the interview, but you found out you had a, another sister. Yeah, that was amazing. How did you find out? Well, I, you know, this is the thing like, that I'd like to talk about, actually. I want to talk about this. When you, as a human being, focus on something the way I focused on making this, so literally... If you can imagine a stone, if you rub it every day, it starts making a dent where your thumb is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a bit like that. Uh, and you're, it's like you're sending a beam of light of the past. And I talk about the past as like a lighthouse beaming into your present. And in a way, what happens is you start attracting ghosts. You start attracting a certain thing. It's like without even telling anyone what you're working on, certain things, coincidences start to happen. It's like tele- telepathy or something. It's crazy. Yeah. So all these sort of mad coincidences started happening. A complete stranger got in touch with me and let me know where my father's grave was. And so I could finally go and sort of put some flowers there. And so I didn't know if he'd been cremated or what. And then, yeah, and then another coincidence thing that happened was finding that I had this sister, same dad, different mum. And that blew, that blew my mind. She's amazing. She's really beautiful and clever and funny and lovely. And it was great to meet her. But she'd been kind of looking for me too. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. sort of, you know, the, yeah, the genealogy off look, website. Yeah, we started looking on the genealogy website. And then I, I, I met so many, her name's Claire Godden, and I wrote to so many Claire Goddens, and I've got some really, I could have made a, put some of them in the book actually, but I didn't. Quite funny replies from different Claire Goddens. I wrote to every single Claire Godden on MySpace, every single Claire Godden. And eventually uh, uh, she found me on Facebook. Yeah, so... Yeah, it was amazing to meet her. I think when we first met, we sat and we got, of course, we got completely plastered. So, I mean, what else are you going to do? Both Paul's daughter, you know. And, um, but we just sort of sat there and it was just so funny watching certain ways she laughs, certain mm-hmm. turns of phrase, the way she uses her hands. Or, 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 and it was like, wow, you could really sort of see which bits came from him because we were mm. both doing them. And, and, yeah, um, I mean, you were doing them yourself. But obviously, yeah. you know, you, neither of you really have any have any memories of him, the person. Yeah. But you can see those mannerisms replicated in each other. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really good. And she's a writer. And she's, yeah, she's a writer with a good twinkle in her eye. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's really lovely. We're quickly running out of time, but can I get you to read us a bit of Springfield Road? Yeah. I thought I'd read this bit because I haven't read it before, and I thought I'd really put myself under pressure. Um, Anyway, I thought I'd do this. As a child, I stared at the sun. I tried to capture a memory of what it was like to be inside my mother's womb, to then be born the first sensations of first light. I believed that if you look through your eyelids directly at the sunlight, maybe that is something of what you saw. You saw the vein inside of red skin. When I was a very little girl, I dreamt I was inside my mother's belly. For many years, I was convinced it was my first and earliest memory, as it was as vivid and real as a memory. I was inside my mother. I could think and feel, but I was wordless. I was inside a dark place with a glimmer of red, a dim glow in the dark like a ruby in the bottom of a pint of Guinness. I called that warm, glowing colour a made-up word, rubiescence. I could hear music the way you hear sound from below the surface of the bathwater. There was a muffled rhythm, something like a drum, my mother's heart beating, blood in my ears, pulsing. Most prevalent and unforgettable, though, was the sense of total peace I felt, and an acceptance that this was all there was, all there ever could be. And whenever I remembered this, be it a dream or a memory of a dream, I could conjure how I'd once felt there, safety, peace, comfort and a pure contentment. Tipping my face towards the sun and through my closed eyelids, I compared this memory dream of my birth to scenes in films of people drowning, the serenity on the face of the drowning person once he or she stopped fighting for air. It seemed peaceful, beautiful and the most graceful of deaths, to sink down below the surface forever, like floating off into space. I imagined that being born was like drowning, but backwards, as violent as not being able to breathe any more. From the essence of ruby, the dark red cave and the heat of the womb, to the bright white glare of a hospital, noise and first light would feel like a sharp, cold slap, and I believed that was why babies screamed so when they were born. Now, maybe this is what all mothers tell their daughters, but my mother always told me that they wanted a little girl and that I was made on purpose. She told me I was a love child. I was born in June, midsummer, and I arrived early, impatient as ever. When my mother went into labour, my father was performing in Canterbury in a jazz concert. In one version of the story, she told me, when my father heard my mother was in labour, he literally leapt, grabbing onto the velvet curtains and joyously swung across the stage. Either way she told it, and the story does alter, my father was wild and excited at the news. A bandmate drove him to the hospital to be at my mother's side and, as my mother put it, we both popped our heads out at the same time. He appeared as I arrived. I weighed eight pounds six when I was born. I was silent and refused to scream or cry. 
Apparently, I started breathing on my own and then immediately put my thumb in my mouth. My mum always says, it's as if you knew, it's as if you'd been here before. You just stared at us and sucked your thumb as though you knew us. The doctor told my mother, oh, you've got an independent one there. Whilst my father kept telling mum how clever she was. Dad was pickled, merrily singing in the hospital corridors to anyone who'd listen. Come and look, come and look, I've got a beautiful baby girl. Mum insists that I was a mother's dream, an easy-going baby. She says we were a happy young family, and my parents believed that somehow things would work themselves out. However, a dancer and a session musician do not make much money, particularly off-season and between gigs. So my mother picked potatoes at a local farm for 50 pence a day. In those days, we live hand-to-mouth, and she could make a chicken last seven days. A roast chicken on Sunday would be stew come Tuesday. Then by adding some spice and love, it became a chicken curry, and after boiling the bones for broth, it was reduced to a soup by the end of the week. I have pale but warm talcum powder memories of our pink fisherman cottage in Ramsgate. For as long as it lasted, with a smoky jazz soundtrack in the background of Dickie Wells, Jean Krutner, Coleman Hawkins and Lester Young, this era was a rose-tinted time. There you go. I've been talking to Selena Gordon, and we've been talking about her book Springfield Road, which is out now from Unbound. So, Selena, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Kate Hamer grew up in Pembrokeshire. She completed a creative writing MA at Aberystwyth University and the Curtis Brown Creative Novel Writing course. She won the Rhys Davies Short Story Competition in 2011, and her winning story was read out on BBC Radio 4. She's recently been awarded a Literary Wales Bursary, and today we're going to be talking about Kate's debut novel, which is The Girl in the Red Coat, which is out this week from Faber and Faber. So, Kate, thank you very much for coming in and talking to me. Thank you. Let's talk about what the book is about, first of all, and this is one of those books where... We probably can't talk very much about what it's about, but why don't you tell me what you're prepared to say about it? You're right, actually. It's it's a bit of a tricky one. It's quite easy to give too much away, I think, so I'll try not to do that. But really, at the heart of it, it's about mothers and daughters, I would say. Their relationship, the relationships that they can have that are not always ideal. I mean, sometimes they can be scratchy, sometimes they can be a bit push me pull you the little girl in the novel Carmel she's already getting a bit um a bit scratchy with her mother and Mm -hmm. and sort of pushing her trying to push her away a little bit and then feeling guilty about it and the mother has her own sort of complicated feelings and it's really about that bond and what happens when the relationship's smashed apart and and Carmel's taken 
But then it goes in a direction, I would say, that probably you might not expect it to go, hopefully. And I think, really, it's about... It's a book about love, really, as much as loss. Mm -hmm. In fact, more, I would say. So it's your first novel, so let's talk about what the process of writing your first novel was like. How did you find it? I think once I started, I sort of couldn't stop, actually. So um, the first chapter I wrote in in one go, Mm -hmm. more or less, and that first chapter hasn't changed a lot since I first wrote it. And once I had that first chapter, kind of everything flowed from there. Mm. I mean, there were lots of questions because it's a dual narrative. Um, it's told by both Beth and Carmel. So there's, there were lots of um, questions about sort of keeping a, trying to keep the two narratives even mm. and, and all that sort of thing. But in terms of story, I kind of knew from almost that first chapter where it was going to end up, mm-hmm. where it was going to travel to and where it was going to end up. Obviously not a complete picture but I I mean I don't tend to sort of plot things out in a very detailed way beforehand but yes so uh so yes I had the last line I had the last line in my head (laughs) you just mentioned I was going to talk about this a bit later but we may as well do it now the the parallel narrative so you've got Beth who's Carmel's mother Mm. narrating half of the book and Carmel narrating half of the book I mean, I guess the answer to my question now is the, the type of story it is, but let's talk about perhaps why you why you settled on having the two parallel narratives. Mm, mm. Well, when, if I tell you a little bit how it sort of came about, is that the first chapter came from an image that I had of a little girl in a red coat, and I knew she was lost in the image. And when I sat up and wrote the first chapter... Kind of to my surprise, it wasn't her speaking, it Mm. was her mother. She was talking about this loss that she's had in her life of her daughter. And right from the start, I just really felt both their voices had to be there because it's about both of them, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's about the that mother daughter bonds. So, so they I couldn't really think of another way of telling it. I mentioned in the in the introduction the creative writing MA that you did, mm. but also the, uh, the the Curtis Brown MA um, novel writing course. So, what were they like? How how has that helped you develop as a writer? I think in lots of ways. I think really, as much as anything, when you do these courses, it's about yourself making a commitment to your writing. Mm-hmm. And I was at that point in my life, my children were a bit older and I was sort of getting slightly more freed up. And I just thought, if I don't do this now, I will be frustrated for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, I'm going to go for it. And I signed up for the MA. Aside from that, I think it's really good to start reading your work out to other people. And that can be really Mm nerve-wracking at first if you haven't done it before. But I think that was a major, major thing, just standing there and, you know, your voice is a bit like this. And you're all kind of, you know, for the first time, properly Mm -hmm. reading work out to other people who also write. And I would say that for both the courses. 
and just being with other people that are really interested that, that you know that that's what they want to do as mm-hmm. well it's like finding your tribe in a way i think i mean certainly the curtis brown course there was lots of practical advice about mm-hmm. how the industry works sure. and agents and editors for, for you know if if you um hadn't been you know knowing how how that works but uh, i mean they were brilliant for me but i you know, I would hate for people to think you have to go on a course, really. Because sure. in a way, I think probably the most important thing you can do is read, actually. At what point was that in terms of the writing of this novel? Did the novel come after, or were you writing the novel while you were attending some of those courses? Yeah, I started the novel on the MA, and I was pretty well into the first draft of it by the time I went on to the Curtis Brown course. I think I had about two thirds of it, or or something like that, and I knew I knew where it was going to end up uh-huh. as well. Um, but do you think it? How do you think it developed differently because of being on those courses? I think maybe being able to discuss it with other people, and I think think you know people make suggestions that that might not have occurred to you because mm-hmm. you're very much in the bubble of this novel and this world. So people might pick things out and say, well. I don't think she would have quite reacted like this or you know that maybe you wouldn't that wouldn't have occurred to you if you were writing in your own just complete bubble you mm-hmm. know Let's talk about the characters then we've mentioned we've mentioned Beth and Carmel there's some other characters we can talk about as well but let tell us a little bit about well let's start with Beth who is who is she give us some background on her She's a woman who has just undergone quite a lot of trauma in her life because she's been left basically by a husband that she was still very much in love with and so her and Carmel have become this little unit of two Mm -hmm. which isn't always easy for either of them she's a very loving mother though and albeit one that's a little bit distracted by her own difficulties in life and Carmel who's her daughter so she's eight Mm. at the start of the story Mm. she's it's a little bit ambiguous and we don't necessarily want to give too much away again because it forms part of the story but Mm. she's a bit different Mm. yeah yeah she's she's an odd little character carmel and she's in writing her i'd never wanted to talk down to her Mm -hmm. by giving her a really childish voice so I've avoided that. Yeah. And, and I also feel quite strongly that children have their own sort of kind of thoughts and ideas and perceptions. And, you know, she comments on that. She gets quite cross with adults who mm-hmm. think that children have just got brains like bats and mice and things like that. But, she, yeah, she is a, a rather strange character. I'm quite sort of influenced by film. And I saw a Spanish film a while back, and I'm, I'm not going to pronounce it <laughs> right. I know I'm not. Cria Quen... Quevices? I don't know that. Uh, no, no. It's from the 70s, anyway. And it's it's got a similar sort of central character of rather mm. an odd little thoughtful girl in it. I think I just I just wanted her to be the sort of character where you know things are going to start swirling round her. And um, Paul, her father, as you've already mentioned, he's estranged from Beth. She's still very much in love with him, but he's set up a, set up a new home, basically, mm. so he's been distant. 
Yes, but I didn't want to sort of touch any, make it stereotypical in, in sort of attaching blame to any of them. I mean, they've all got, they're all just trying their best, actually, I think. And um, he has become a bit estranged. But we kind of find out that, you know, it's partly because of the difficult relationship with, with her mother and that he felt that it was really stressful for Carmel when he did come round. Mm-hmm. So he sort of left it for a while. So I, I didn't really want to sort of point the finger or, or in any stereotypical way about the sort of, you know, the absent father or the this or the that or anything. Because I, I think on the whole, in these situations, people are just trying to do their best, really. Now, again, we come to a point where I don't know if, if we should discuss any of the other <laughs> characters. It's a difficult one, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, is, is there anything you'd, again, be happy to say about the other characters? Or at least, certainly, Gramps, because yeah. I guess he is mentioned in the uh, in Yes, the true, that is true, yeah. <laughs> again, I think Gramps is someone, however much we dislike him, who feels that he is right he believes that he's right and that's what enables him to do what he does and um oh gosh this is difficult because in a certain it's very difficult to say without saying um in a certain extent to in one aspect he is right so oh that all sounds like a tangle doesn't it <laughs> how to say it without saying it <laughs> If, if you haven't already already worked it out, there is a mystery at the, uh, <laughs> at the centre of, center of this book that we're, we're sort of edging around, which means that we can't talk about the world that Carmel ends up in, really, as well. I sort of wanted to talk to you how you um, how you research that because it's so vividly portrayed and interesting. It's called the Girl in the Red Coat. You mentioned that image that mm. you had, mm. and actually, that's it's a familiar image, not just from mm. folklore, but from from popular culture, the girl in the red coat. So obviously we think of Red Riding Hood. And indeed there are sort of wolves and and I think that world that Carmel gets taken into with tents and things sort of evokes like a, that sort of like folklorish world as well but of course then there's things like don't look now and schindler's list even where there's always this this iconic girl in, in a red coat so why why do you think you, you're stuck on that image i think it is a really powerful image to me and i was quite conscious actually when when i used the title that those references would be there in, in people's mm-hmm. heads. I mean, Don't Look Now, I think it's an incredible film. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously Schindler's List, that image is, you know, because everything else is in black and white. And in a way, I kind of thought that maybe by using that image, the novel would become something part of something bigger than itself. Mm-hmm. That in, there's this bank of uh, memory images that people have. Yeah. It almost takes you down all these other roads and I think it was only it's strange actually how you realize things it was only really after I finished that I thought oh my goodness Little Red Riding Hood it's mm-hmm. little the story she strayed off the path it is and it sort of smacked between the eyes then so I think that really did play its part and somebody um did say in a review that they thought of it a bit as a 21st century fairy tale and i think that's you know i thought that was quite accurate actually i, I see that as well and but I, I like that you just said that you know the red Riding Hood thing came to you afterwards because i've seen it described as sort of a modern retelling of, mm. of little red Riding Hood, and i don't think that i think that sells it short a little bit i don't, I don't think that's really the case although there is you know said there's 
mentioned, not wall, literal walls, but walls get mentioned, and there's forests, and there's right at the beginning there's a maze. She gets mm. lost in lost in a maze. So there's sort of fairy tale imagery, but I didn't think that it was like a conscious rewriting of of Red Riding Hood. So it's interesting to hear you say that that was a, an unconscious thing. And well, I guess those things are unconscious, aren't they? Fairy tales, they're just there in our back, yeah. in our you know, in our minds embedded deep yeah I, I i find i find this really interesting sort of territory actually because mm. i i was really brought up on fairy tales mm. and i had a really ancient book of Grimm's fairy tales when i was little and i think a lot of these things when you're writing just do they are pretty subconscious actually and they're working their way through and i mean like a big fat clue I've got I've actually got print of little red riding hood an old-fashioned print up on my wall that I probably see every day and it was only afterwards I looked at it and thought ah (laughs) but I'm really I'm really interested how the subconscious does this I'm Ben Goldacre. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This is about, it's a book about, we're talking about it in terms of, you know, the influence of fairy tale here, but it's it's a book that's set in the in the near present, it's mm. sort of like late, late 1990s, early 2000s. Yeah. And, you know, there are very famous disappearances of, of children in the media all the time. I mean, it doesn't seem to be influenced by those, but unconsciously, again, you know, how difficult is it writing a story about the disappearance of a child without being influenced by, you know, the McCanns and things like that? I, I sort of made a really deliberate choice at the beginning that I wasn't going to do any research into real cases mm-hmm. for various reasons. I, d- I didn't want it to to sort of stray into that territory. I didn't want. I wanted it to be Beth and Carmel's story and and nobody else's. So in a way, I've I've sort of really consciously sort of kept quite apart from all that. I think as a parent, it's it's a pretty universal fear. Mm. So, to a certain extent, I think, I w- I w- you know, you're working through your own fears, really, mm-hmm. by writing this particular story. Well, this was my next question, actually. <laughs> I mean, being a parent of two children, how different do you think, or could you even have written this book if you weren't a parent? How different would it have been if you didn't have any children? I'm not sure, actually. I'm, I'm really not sure. I mean, do you always have to have that, that kind of emotional resonance? To I really don't know the answer to that question. I'd certainly um, say in most cases not, but in this case, perhaps, maybe, it is something maybe. that would have been a very different book if you said if you weren't like you just said yourself working out working yeah. out your own fears yeah and it's not I, I also I very much didn't want it to be a sort of procedural type crime book you mm-hmm. know obviously there is a crime there yeah. but the whole sort of 
anger with the police and all that sort of thing is is quite lightly lightly drawn because I wanted to really focus on um, the two characters in mm-hmm. it. The book's just been published last week, so how has it? How has the reception been so far? I mean, there was, there's quite a lot of buzz around the book, and and what's happened since it's been published? Yes, well, I, I mean, I think there's been there has seemed to have been a lot of good reception to it, but um, as a writer, I'm I'm at home. <laughs> In my room on my own, <laughs> back in Wales, writing really. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you see all everything on Twitter and and everything that's sent through to you. But um, to a certain extent, you're you know you're not you're slightly separate from mm-hmm. it all, I suppose. But I'm just about to embark on a sort of mega tour mm-hmm. of going uh, to events and to library events and literary festival events. So I think that will probably change again now because I'm going to start meeting people, obviously, that have read it. You mm-hmm. know. And what sort of things have you got coming up then? Where can, where can we see you? Oh, everywhere. I'm going to... Um, I'm going to Gateshead and Dudley as part of an event called the... I think it's called the Mega Read, which is an association with an organisation called the Reading Agency, Mm -hmm. who are absolutely brilliant. And this is a book club event. I'm going to uh, the Suffolk Literary Festival. I'm going to Hail Mai. I'm going to Bristol Crime Fest. This isn't a definitive list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And what's next then for you? What are you working on? Anything else at the moment now? As you said, while all this fuss is going on before the tour, you've just been you know sat alone in your yeah. in your room working. Yeah. So what can we expect next? Well, I'm I'm writing. I'm working on my second novel at the moment, and um, it's funny talking about works in progress. Actually, it feels a bit odd, but again, it's it's got very much a female character at the the centre of it. Mm-hmm. That's all the questions from me, Kate, so can I ask you to to read us a little bit of the book so we can experience it? Certainly. This is from the very first chapter. I dream about Carmel often. In my dreams, she's always walking backwards. The day she was born, there was snow on the ground. A silvery light arced through the window as I held her in my arms. As she grew up, I nicknamed her My Little Hedge Child. I couldn't imagine her living anywhere but the countryside. Her thick curly hair stood out like a spray of breaking glass or a dandelion head. You look like you've been dragged through a hedge backwards, I'd say to her. And she would smile. Her eyes would close and flutter, the pale purple vein lids like butterflies sealing each eye. I can imagine that, she'd say finally, licking her lips. I'm looking out of the window and I can almost see her in those tights that made cherry licorice of her legs, walking up the lane to school. The missing her feels like my throat has been removed. Tonight I'll dream of her again. I can feel it. I can feel her in the twilight, sitting up on the skeined branches of the beech tree and calling out. But at night, in my sleep, she'll be walking backwards towards the house. Or is it away? So she never gets any closer. Her clothes were often an untidy riot. The crotch of her winter tights bowed down between her knees so she'd walk like a penguin. Her school collar would stick up on one side and be buried in her jumper on the other, but her mind was a different matter. She knew what people were feeling. When Sally's husband left her, Sally sat in my kitchen drinking tequila as I tried to console her. Salt and lime and liquor for her husband. Carmel came past and made her fingers into little sticks that she stuck into Sally's thick brown hair and massaged her scalp. Sally moaned and dropped her head backwards. 
Oh, my God, Carmel, where did you learn to do that? Hush, nowhere, she whispered, kneading away. That was just before she disappeared into the fog. Christmas, 1999. The children's cheeks blotched pink with cold and excitement as they hurried through the school gates. To me, they all looked like little trolls compared to Carmel. I wondered then if every parent had such thoughts. We had to walk home through the country lanes and already it was nearly dark. It was cold as we started off and snow edged the road. It glowed in the twilight and marked our way. I realised I was balling my hands in tight fists inside my pockets with worries about Christmas and no money. As I drew my hands out into the cold air and uncurled them, Carmel fell back and I could hear her grumbling behind me. Do hurry up, I said, anxious to get home out of the freezing night. You realise, Mum, that I won't always be with you, she said, her voice small and breathy in the fading light. Maybe my heart should have frozen then. Maybe I should have turned and gathered her up and taken her home, kept her shut away in a fortress or a tower, locked with a golden key that I would swallow, so my stomach would have to be cut open before she could be found. But of course I thought it meant nothing, nothing at all. Well, you're with me for now. I turned. She seemed far behind me. The shape of her head was the same as the tussocky tops of the hedges that closed in on either side. Carmel? A long plume of delicate ice breath brushed past my coat sleeve. I'm here. I've been talking to Kate Hamer and we've been talking about her book, The Girl in the Red Coat. Kate, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.